but also reminds us of the, the upcoming scripture, and it's right there embedded in the email, and you can read it, and it's a great way, just doing that little discipline of, of reading that, the scripture before it is preached. The Spirit will use that in this time together. So I encourage you to do that every week. Read the scripture ahead of time and, and allow the Spirit to work on you ahead and, and, and soften your heart for the word preached. So a couple Fourth of Julys ago, we had uh, we have, usually have people over on the Fourth of July, and uh, it was my custom to go out and buy some fireworks and have just a little fireworks display in our in our driveway. And I, I think that year we had I know we had the Dennings over wherever, wherever I think it's great that Eli is here today. Is he here this morning? Somewhere he's yeah he came in to to uh, visit the Freudigs. Uh, so we had the Dennings over, and I think um, my my family was there, and I think Birgit Adams was there, and can't remember anybody else. But I had gone out and I bought some fireworks, and I bought this brick of fireworks. You know, it, it, these uh, sixteen shots that go up and, and blow up, and I thought this is going to be great. And so I placed it on the uh, on the. the uh, right in front of the garage, and I lit it, and we all kind of stepped back. And the first one went up, and it was awesome. It was a big explosion. I thought, this is going to be great, 16 of these. I looked down, and, and the brick had, had done a little hop, and it had fallen down, pointing towards us. And so the second one went off, and it came towards us. And from then on, 14 shots, it was really fireworks roulette. Because it would shoot and then it would spin and it would stop and shoot and spin and stop and shoot and spin and stop and shoot. And we were diving for cover. The Dennings were running. Birgit Adams, I think my wife ran into the, to the house. Needless to say, that was the last 4th of July that I bought fireworks. Now part of the fun of fireworks is when you light the fuse and you run to a safe distance, okay, and you wait, right? And it's that time. How long will it take for the fuse to meet the gunpowder? And you wait, and you watch, and you kind of... There's this pregnant moment. That's kind of what it was like for 400 years between the prophet Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. God had lit the fuse at the end of Malachi that we had just read together about this, this coming prophet that will precede the Messiah. And then he simply stopped speaking. He became silent. No more prophets. Stop communicating. 400 years. Then all of a sudden, John the Baptist appears preaching in the wilderness. And take your Bibles and look at verse 1 in chapter 3 and listen to how the the fuse finally met the gunpowder. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand! 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for it from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he is coming after me who is mightier than I am, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me to preach this text well. Spirit, take my words and and make them like arrows in people's hearts and minds. Challenge us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we're introduced to John the Baptist. We're not told too much about him in Matthew, actually. He just kind of bursts onto the, onto the scene. But in Luke's gospel, we find out that he is the son of a priest, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife. His birth was announced, much like Jesus's was. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, his father, while he was serving in the temple and told him that he would have this miraculous birth of a son. Miraculous not because, not because it was an immaculate conception like Mary, but miraculous because Elizabeth was well past birthing age. And the angel tells Zechariah to name him John. Also tells him that, that this baby in, in Elizabeth's womb will be filled with the Holy Spirit from before birth, which is pretty miraculous. And that he is to have the most important ministry of any prophet that has ever lived. The ministry of John the Baptist. This ministry that was, that was predicted, that was prophesied for us over 700 years ahead of, of John's birth. John's ministry was, was a, a predicted ministry. That's what Matthew is telling us in 3 when he quotes... Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And in the last prophet Malachi, 400 years before Christ, we're told twice that this prophet is coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I will send a messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. 
And again in Matthew 4 that we read together earlier, God is telling his people that there will be this prophet that will come before the Messiah. It will be one of the signs that's going to authenticate this man that comes after him. See, God didn't want his people to miss the most important thing in the history of man, the coming of Christ. I think that's why God was silent so long. When I paused earlier and didn't say something for a few seconds, I saw some people kind of leaning in. I saw some people smiling. It it creates this anticipation. When the fuse burns on a firework, you run first, but then you wait and you lean in and you watch intently and you anticipate. That's exactly what God wanted his people to do. That's why John came. He wanted his people through that silence to lean in, to watch intently, to wait expectantly for that prophet whose ministry would be patterned after Elijah. And that's another part of John's ministry. It's a patterned ministry. Those are the very last words that God spoke. The very last words that God spoke through a prophet is what we read. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. And his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now the Jews had had historically misinterpreted this. They were looking for the resurrected Elijah. And by the way, they're still looking for the resurrected Elijah. Orthodox Jews during the Passover will, will typically set a place setting. If there's a family of five, they'll set six place settings. And that sixth place setting sits untouched. And they'll pour a glass of wine for Elijah to come. And one of the traditions still in the Jewish community is at the end of the meal, the youngest child will go and will open the door of the front door. If Elijah had come, they were looking for Elijah. But God is not telling his people to expect Elijah, but to look for a prophet whose ministry looks like Elijah's ministry. Now, if you know Elijah's ministry, you know he was called to preach and prophesy at a spiritual low point, at a spiritual nadir in the life of Israel. That time when King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were reigning. If you know about that time, God tells us in, in Second Kings, in First Kings, that he set up altars to the Canaanite gods of Baal and Ashtoreth. That he rebuilt Jericho, that God forbade to ever be rebuilt. That was the judgment on Jericho. And he rebuilt Jericho. And his wife Jezebel proactively sought out the prophets of God to murder them. Proactively. She was so evil that to this day we still use her name as an idiom for evil and seductress. She's like a Jezebel. Under Ahab, Israel wandered far, far from God. And God sent Elijah in his powerful ministry... 
He's one of the prophets that, that we all know because he had such a powerful ministry to reawaken his people spiritually. Speak hard things and to do hard things so that the people of Israel would come back to, to Yahweh. He, remember, he famously challenged the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember that. He challenged the dull spiritual condition of the people of Israel over and over again. As a matter of fact, he was his own voice crying out in the wilderness, wasn't he? And that was the pattern of John's ministry. Look for that type of ministry again. John MacArthur writes, John's ministry was to call people away from the corrupt and dead religious system of their day. Away from ritualism, worldliness, hypocrisy, and superficiality. John called them away from Jerusalem, away from Jericho, and back into the wilderness, where they would depend on God once again. Isn't that the symbol of the wilderness? Dependence? That's the symbol that is used throughout Scripture. Wilderness is dependence. Israel could do nothing, would die without God, supplying their needs daily. So John came to fulfill Isaiah's words to be the voice crying out in the wilderness. And that brings us to the purpose of John's ministry. John's purpose was to prepare God's people for Christ's coming. You all know this as well as I do. When a, when a king, when a monarch would travel in his kingdom... He would send somebody ahead of him, down the road ahead of him, going into the towns and villages, and they would enter into a town and village, and they would blow a trumpet, and they would announce, York is on his way, prepare yourselves. So the people would come out into the streets and be ready for their king to come into their town. That's exactly what John was doing. That was his purpose. Isaiah said it, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That is what Malachi meant by, behold, I am sending a messenger. He will prepare the way before me. John was preparing for King Jesus' arrival. That's what we see in verse 11. He says, okay, yeah, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than me. This is the trumpet sound whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. But now we turn to the message of John the Baptist. John's message was basically a threefold message. We see it here very clearly. First of all, his message was repent, right? Repent. I mean, that's right in verse 2. He comes right out of the gates. That's, what, that's the, the fuse hitting the gunfire, gunpowder rather. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, of God, is at hand. That's the basic message John was sent to preach into the spiritual wilderness of Israel. He was sent to, to using an agricultural metaphor, to go into the fields that, that had become hard and to begin to plow them up, get them ready for seed. 
That was John's ministry. That was his message, to, to plow up the hard ground. You can't just throw seeds on a, on a field that has not been plowed. You have to prepare the ground, and that is what John the Baptist was doing, to break up those hard clods, to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And that's the same message that we're told to preach. You realize that we're not told to tell people our testimony. You realize that, don't you? That's not what we're told to say. Tell them about you. No. The basic message that we are to tell, and it begins right here, is repent of your sins. That's John's message. That's our message. That's the message of the gospel. In, in about as, as, as finite a, a, a nutshell as we can get it down to. Repent of your sins. That word, repent, as you're sharing Christ with your friends and your family, your neighbors, those who you work with, that word repent, that needs to be part of the vernacular of sharing the gospel. We need to tell people that it's imperative to repent. Repent of your sins. Now there's a lot of confusion around, or maybe not confusion, but, but, but fuzziness, about what repentance really is. And so I thought a definition would be helpful that we can then just unpack. And the definition of repentance is a realization of and a heartfelt sorrow over your sin that leads you to look outside yourself to God for forgiveness and depend on him completely Change your desire, thinking, and conduct. That's a good definition, a holistic definition of what repentance is. And what I'd like to do is, is just unpack that if, for a second. Repentance, first and foremost, is a realization of sin, right? Repentance, to, to repent of something, to be sorry for something, you have to know what that something is, Right? There must be a reason to repent. And thus you must realize that you have sinned. You must realize that, you, that you're a sinner. That's what Chef Gordon Ramsay tries to do on Nightmare Kitchens. Have you ever seen Nightmare Kitchens? He tries to get them to see that, that there's a problem. You know, we have a problem of sin. He tries to get them to see that there's a problem. One of the painfully entertaining parts of that show is when Gordon Ramsay tries over and over to get the restaurant workers and the owners to realize that they're in an oh-no situation. The owners have called Ramsay in because they know they're in trouble, but Ramsay knows that they need, they need brutal honesty. So what he does is he usually orders about half a dozen things off the menu And then he has them served and he tastes them one by one. And then with with passion and real clarity, he tells them how awful their food is. He wants the restaurant owners to realize that the core problem is not the wait staff, it's not the ordering, it's, it's not the marketing. 
The core problem is your food. It's bad. And until they understand the real problem, there's really no hope. And John comes with brutal honesty. He says, repent. There's, there's a real core problem you have to face. That is your sin. That, that you're not just in a, in a bad spot. You're in an oh-no kind of situation. And until you realize that, there's really no real hope. Until you realize that, there's really no real hope. That's the first part of what true repentance is. It's a realizing, realization that you're in an oh-no situation where sin is concerned. But then next, there has to be sorrow over that sin. There has to be sorrow over that sin. And here we have to be a little introspective. We're not sorry because of the consequences of your sin. That's not true repentance. It's not sorrow over being caught in a sin. No true repentance will come from that. It's not sorrow over some loss of reputation. These are all what Scripture calls worldly sorrows in 2 Corinthians 7. They're all self-focused. Now, what Scripture calls godly sorrow is directed at God. It's a sorrow over hurting your relationship with God. It's a sorrow over hurting your relationship with God. And, and brothers and sisters, that kind of sorrow cannot be drummed up. It can't be faked. It has to be brought on through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was getting at in the upper room when he talked to his disciples and he said, listen, I'm going to send you somebody. I'm going to send you the counselor and he's going to convict the world of sin. That's part of the Holy Spirit's job. No amount of preaching, pleading, or pointing of fingers will bring about godly sorrow over sin unless the Holy Spirit is at work in your and my life. So we have to pray that God will bring you that type of sorrow. Next part of true repentance is is looking outside yourself for help, looking to God for help. That's another part of repentance. Most of the time we look everywhere else, don't we? When you're in trouble, when you're in a no-no situation, we look to ourselves, we look to our, our morality, we look to life coaches, we see here in, in verse 9 that, that the Pharisees looked to their heritage, didn't they? John says, listen, don't look to Abraham for hope. John was putting his finger on the fact that they were depending on the fact that they were Jews. Pharisees and Sadducees, we're Jews, we're okay. They were the chosen people. They were depending on the fact they were looking to that they grew up around God and godly things. Same thing can happen with children that grow up in a godly household. The same thing can happen to you children who are growing up in a godly household. Frankly, that's, that's what I'm a concern of mine 
with my kids. They can subtly begin re- relying on their, on their heritage. They can subtly begin relying on, oh, well, my, my dad's a pastor. I'm okay, my dad's a pastor. That they grew up around the things of God. That they went to church every Sunday of their youth. And they can begin subtly fooling themselves, just like the Pharisees did, into thinking, I'm okay. Children of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, beware of falling into that snare. Do not presume on your salvation. Look to Christ. That's who you have to look to. Nothing else. Spurgeon wrote this, keep your eye simply on him. Keep your eye simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind when you wake in the morning, when you lie down at night. Kids, please remember this, Jesus alone. He is the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him went to the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Don't look to your church attendance. Don't look to your record. Look to Jesus' perfect record. Don't look to the sacrifices you made growing up as a child, growing up in the church, in a Christian household. Don't look to those sacrifices. Oh, I have to do this. I have to go on Wednesday. I have to go on Sunday. I have to go on those things. Don't look to those sacrifices. Look to the sacrifice that Jesus did for you, giving his very life. Don't look to the for hope. The world will tell you all kinds of things to put your hope in. But the only hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. Lastly, in authentic repentance, there's a real change of desire, thinking, and conduct. There's a real change in desire, thinking, and conduct. Have you ever wondered, have I really repented? I've asked that question. Is this real? It, is this worldly sorrow? Is it sorrow because I got caught or because of the consequences? Or is this godly sorrow? Have you ever asked that question? How do you know if you've repented well? It's a great question. Is it saying the right words? That's what the Catholics will tell you. Is it repenting over and over and over again? That's what our flesh will tell us, right? Or is it doing some kind of penance? Maybe if I'm, if I'm just downtrodden. Or is it being sorry enough? Is it saying sorry enough? Is it, is it if I can just be sorry enough? How do you know? Can you really know? I think you can. Authentic repentance, John says it right here. Repentance bears fruit. 
Repentance bears fruit. He says it in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. He's condemning the Pharisees and Sadducees for that. Of repentance is change. Change. There's change in your life. The Greek word used for repentance consistently in the New Testament is metanoia. And that means to turn around, to change direction, to alter your direction 180 degrees. That's what that means. There has to be some evidence of drastic change in your life. Now, it's not instantaneous. You don't repent and then everything turns around drastically. God can do that, and maybe you've heard stories of that, and that God can do anything. But normally, the fruit of repentance comes out slowly, progressively in a life. You begin to slowly act differently because you've begun to think differently. Because, because your desires have changed. God has actually changed your heart's desires. And now, instead of wanting A, you, you begin to desire B. That's the fruit that John is talking about in verse 8. The proof of godly sorrow, repentance, is change. What the former slave ship captain turned Christian pastor John Newton wrote about should be true of all believers. He wrote this, Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I'm not what I once was. Christian, can you say that about your life? I hope you can. Second message of John the Baptist was be baptized. Repent and be baptized. In other words, accept God's cleansing. Accept God's cleansing. Verse 5 and 6 tell us Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region around the Jordan were coming out to him and were being baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John is nicknamed, this wasn't his last name, but he's nicknamed in the Bible John the Baptist. Because of what he was doing. And what he was doing kind of looks totally normal to our eyes. We go, yeah, you know, people repent, they confess, and they're baptized. That's kind of how we do it. But that's not how the Jews did it. The Jews, the Jews didn't get baptized. It was when when the Gentiles became Jews, they were baptized because they need cleansing. Jews didn't get baptized. So I'm sure that's why some, some of the Pharisees said, what's going on here? We've got to go out and check this out. Jews are getting baptized? I'm sure that's part of what draw them, drew them out to John. Because only Gentiles were baptized when they came to faith because only they needed that cleansing. Jews were the people of God and did not need that type of radical cleansing. Yet here we see the Jews being baptized. So what, what John is showing us and what scripture is showing us here is that everybody needs that type of radical spiritual cleansing. Everybody does. 
That's what baptism represents. Radical spiritual cleansing. Now next week, or rather in a week or two, when I'm preaching again, I'm going to take a week to step back from the text of Matthew, and I'm gonna, we're going to talk about what baptism is. Because it's important for us to fully understand baptism. But here, dealing with John's baptism, it's a baptism of repentance. Going down into the water dirty and coming out of the water clean. It's a symbolic act, right? An outward symbol of an inward reality. You're forgiven and cleansed of sin spiritually, but physically, that's what we see happening in baptism. You're cleansed before God. Bobby Moore was an England soccer team captain who won the World Cup back in 1966. An interviewer later asked him to describe how he felt when the Queen of England greeted him on the field after the victory. He talked about how terrified he was approaching Queen Elizabeth because he noticed that she was wearing white gloves and his hands were filthy from the game. As he walked along the balcony, he kept wiping his hands on his shorts, he says. And when he got right before the queen, he actually wiped his hands on the, on the velvet, trying to get them clean before he, he uh, greeted the queen. Just think, if, if Bobby was so concerned about that with, with the lowly queen of England, how should we feel coming before the king of all creation? How much more horrified should we be at the prospect of approaching God unclean? Because of our sin, we're not just dirty on the outside. Our hearts need cleansing. Our hearts are dirty. But through repentance and turning to Christ, we're cleansed of sin. That's what Christ does when we accept him, when we trust in his work and not our own. When we trust that, that he took the penalty for our sin, when we trust that Christ's work is sufficient, he cleanses on, us on the inside, past, present, and future sins, totally clean, hands totally clean, so we can approach God without fear of his wrath. Isn't that wonderful? So John's message is repent, be baptized, but it's also an urgent message. Do it now. Don't wait. Charles Spurgeon said of preaching in his day, that's 150 years ago, gospel ministers, instead of piercing men and women with the sword of the Spirit, only show them its handle. They let them see the bright diamonds on the scabbard, but never let them feel the sharpness of the two-edged sword says to me that things haven't changed too much in preaching. It's so tempting. It's so tempting to stand up here and give you and show you the, the, the beautiful scabbard of the gospel. Always. It's so tempting, brothers and sisters, to stand up here and tell you about the peace and hope and joy that we heard about and the acceptance into God's family. And those are all true, and those are all wonderful. 
Those are truths of the gospel. But here John is letting us feel a little bit of the blade of the gospel. Because there are two sides to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what John is saying here. There's two sides to it. There's great beauty, but there's dire warning too. There's great comfort, but there's also great fear that come with it. There's salvation, but there's also punishment. An offer of God's rescue from his wrath and a guarantee of its endurance. That's what makes John's message so urgent. We see that in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is... And he used, he, metaphorically, the axe is at the foot of the tree. Verse 12, the winnowing fork is in his hand. It's going to clear the threshing floor. All these are communicating there's an end coming. There's a reckoning coming. There's a judgment coming. All this is saying time is running out. There's a kind of a weird Christmas gift that was given this year. Not in our family, but I'm sure in some families. It was a watch called the Ticker. T-I-K-K-E-R. Anybody heard of this? It's a wristwatch that counts down the seconds of your life. It uses an algorithm that the federal government uses to, to predict lifespans and then converts it into years, months, days, minutes, and seconds you have left. It is, of course, an estimate of the time of death, but the effect is, is quite sobering, isn't it? If you were to wear that on your wrist, you'd have that reminder that there is an end. This life is not going to go on forever. Be very sobering. That's what, that's what John is trying to do in his preaching here. He's trying to give a very sobering message. Wake people up to the fact that there is an end to God's patience. There is a coming wrath of God. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be punishment for sins. Spurgeon said, if there's a God, he cannot let sin go unpunished. If he is really God and a just judge of all the earth, he must have an utter abhorrence of all evil. He goes on to say, it cannot be possible that we would think that the same, that he would think the same of the honest as the dishonest, the moral and the immoral, the sober and the drunken, the truthful and the lying. Sin must be punished or else God is not just. And that's what John is reminding us of here. That sin is going to be punished. But John's message is twofold. Yes, it's true. Judgment is coming. But the Messiah is coming too. That's his ministry. That's, that's part of his message in verse 11. There's one coming whose sandals I'm not fit to, to carry. I'm baptizing with repentance, but he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he's coming. So the Messiah is coming. Jesus came to offer a way out from under God's gavel. Isn't that amazing? He came to 
of your sin, to stand in your place, to take the full wrath of God on the cross, the full wrath of God, so that you and I don't have to. If you place your trust in Jesus, you'll never stand in that spot. I'm going to close in a prayer of repentance and faith right now. I'd like to invite anyone here who has not given their life to Christ, has not trusted Christ. This is, this is your opportunity to get from, out from underneath God's gap. This is your opportunity to not look to yourself, but to look to Christ for salvation. If you're here today and and you've never given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to, in the silence of your own heart, just, just pray these words along with me. Pray. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, for too long I've kept you out of my life. I know that I'm a sinner. And there's nothing I can do to save myself. I confess my complete helplessness to forgive my own sin or to work my way to heaven. At this moment, I trust Christ alone as the one who bore my sin when he died on the cross. I believe that he did all that he will ever, will ever be necessary for me to stand in your holy presence. I thank you that God, you raised Christ from the dead as a guarantee of my own resurrection. As best I can, I now transfer my trust to him. I'm grateful that he has promised to receive me despite my many sins and failures. Father, I take you at your word. I thank you that I can face death now, that you are my Savior. Thank you for the assurance that you will walk with me for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.